You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. We have a very, very extra, extra special, special guest host today. With me is Jeff Gales, Executive Director of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? I'm doing very well. Thank you for that very nice introduction. I've never been described as extra, extra, special, special before. <laughs> well, you are you are to me, so uh, very, very happy to have you with me here today. You've taken part in the podcast uh, a little bit before, but never actually been the official co-host, so this will be a little, little different. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And this is episode 107 of Lighthearted, scheduled to be posted on February 28th, 2021. The day after that, March 1st, actually marks the 119th anniversary of the establishment of the first two lighthouses in Alaska at Five Fingers and Sentinel Island. That's not counting a whale oil lantern that was placed in the cupola on Baranoff's Castle at Sitka around 1834, toward the end of Russian rule in Alaska. Have you ever been to Alaska, Jeff? I've never personally been to Alaska, but we sent a a group of lighthouse enthusiasts there a few years ago, and the tour was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, the weather was perfect. They saw all the lighthouses by boat and by air, and it was one of the best tours I think we've ever offered with the U.S. Lighthouse Society. You know, the Alaska is uh, such an amazing place, not only for the natural beauty, but the lighthouses as well. And it's much bigger. It's a much bigger state than most people think. You know, you look at the map, you don't realize how vast the Alaskan territory is. And it was quite a challenge getting everybody to see all those lighthouses, but we did it. But uh, it's definitely on my bucket list. I'm, I'm ready yeah. to go. Well, me too. It's near the top of my bucket list. And I've certainly heard a lot about that tour. I think it's kind of legendary and as far as the... Uh, USLHS tours going. Since we just talked about it a little bit, I'll just mention for people who don't know, maybe they're listening for the first time or whatever, or aren't familiar with the society. If you go to uslhs.org, the website, there's information about tours. Of course, the the pandemic has put a little little bit of a damper on the tours, uh, or did last season. A lot of but- a lot of a damper. Yes, yes. But <laughs> hopefully some of them will be happening this this coming season, right? Yeah, we're looking forward to doing some domestic tourists in 2021, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to bring back our international trips in 2022. One of the things that we're doing in place of the tours is we're doing these Zoom meeting tour retrospectives, which are a lot of fun, and it gives everybody a chance to experience a trip, even if you can't go on one. Right. Yeah, they are a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing about a dozen of those. And I know we've got some more coming up. So people can watch for that on the uh, website, Facebook page. They can get on the email list to get news about things like that. So on the same day, those two lighthouses in Alaska began service. That same day, March 1st, 1902, the Statue of Liberty was discontinued as an official aid to navigation. Not many people know that the Statue of Liberty was originally a lighthouse and a monument. In fact, when it was dedicated in October 1886, it became one of the first electrically operated aids to navigation in the U.S. The light was in the torch 305 feet above the water. That's right. Yeah. 
And uh, also the pedestal was lit by arc lamps. The upper part of the statue was lighted with a searchlight from the uh, fort on the island. There were three resident lightkeepers on Liberty Island until 1902. And at that time, the management of the statue went to the War Department and later the National Park Service. So have you been to the Statue of Liberty lately, Jeff? Not lately, but I've been there many times. Uh, My family was from New York and I would summer there. And uh, we typically would do all of the tourist things when we went. And the Statue of Liberty was always high on the on the list of things to do. Also, we used to love to just hop on the Staten Island Ferry and uh, take that free ride to Staten Island and back. And it goes right past the statue. So we'd, we'd at least do that if we were in town. Yeah. You also get a good view of the Robins Reef Lighthouse, where famous Kate Walker was keeper for, for many years on this That's from right. the Staten Island right. Ferry. Yeah, I toured the the Statue of Liberty in, uh, when was that, about 2007 when I was writing a book on New York Harbor and Hudson River Lighthouses. And then a few years later, I was there with my wife, Charlotte. Were you able to climb all the way up to the top to look out over the the harbor? Just to the... um, Lookout level, the um, not higher than that. Like the times, the crown not up has into been the open. crown. No, no. Okay, I don't think you. There. I don't think that they haven't allowed that for a long time. When I was little, we could have done that, but I think in recent years they've prevented people from going up all the way. But it's an experience to get up all the way into the crown. It's amazing. Well, even up to just to get to the observation level, I think it was like 275 steps, and that was enough steps for for one day. Up well, and you down. know, uh, us in the lighthouse world, we like climbing, and being able to <laughs> climb to true. the top of the Statue of Liberty is an important goal to achieve. Yes, I agree. So, on today's episode of Lighthearted, we have two very interesting guests. And uh, I know you are well uh, acquainted with at least one of them, Jeff. First, we're going to talk with Dan Spinella. His company, Artworks Florida, creates incredible replicas of historic Fresnel lighthouse lenses. And then we're going to talk with Art Dunlop, who's an architect in Scotland, and he's done a series of beautiful sketches of Scottish lighthouses. And again, Jeff, I know you're very familiar with Dan Spinella's work. Yeah, I met Dan many years ago, and we hit it off right away. He's a uh, engineer for Disney, and yes. he works in robotics, if I'm not mistaken. And he is so talented and just uh, saw a need and filled that need with his engineering and artistic skills. And these lenses he creates are just fantastic. And every year, he gets better and better. So, you know, what he's creating today are really exact replicas of historical lenses for lighthouses. And they act Mm -hmm. exactly the way a historical lens did. Um, They're made with modern materials, but they perform exactly the same way. It's really an accomplishment. And I, if I'm not mistaken, he's the only one in the world that does this currently. To the best of my knowledge, that's a good point. The best of my knowledge, he is the only person doing this. So, and I really enjoyed talking with him. We did talk about that Disney, uh, part of his career as well, how he works on the animatronic figures and so forth. So, Jeff, can you help me tell our listeners a bit more about Dan Spinella and artworks? Sure, no problem. Dan began his Fresnel lens research and restoration in 1992. His first project was to provide engineering drawings to aid the restoration of the St. Augustine, Florida Lighthouse. Their uh, first-order Fresnel lens needed attention. Several restoration projects followed, And uh, using both acrylic and glass prisms, he restored historic lighthouse lenses. 
Dan's company, Artworks Florida, began creating full-scale reproduction Fresnel lenses in 2004. To date, 40 reproduction Fresnel lenses have been manufactured. Some of his lenses are installed in lighthouses as aids to navigation, and some are on exhibit in lighthouse museums across the country. Dan's also created numerous short videos that explain the intricate workings of the Fresnel lens and the creation process of the reproduction of the lenses themselves. Uh, DVDs of his of these videos can be purchased on the Lighthouse Society's website in our shop area. And you can see some of them uh, under Artworks Florida on Dan's uh, YouTube channel. So I had a chance to speak with Dan Spinella recently, so let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking with Dan Spinella of uh, Artworks Florida today, and uh, Dan is very well known in the lighthouse world for his amazing reproductions of historic Fresnel lighthouse lenses. Thanks so much for being with me today, Dan. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jeremy. I've been a fan of your work for years, and it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, Many of our listeners, of course, are are lighthouse aficionados. I think they have a pretty good idea, uh, for the most part, what Fresnel lenses are. For those uh, listeners who don't know, though, I'm wondering if you could maybe just kind of give like a a Cliff's Notes version of the origin of Fresnel lenses and maybe explain what makes them so special. Okay, I will do that. Fresnel lenses were first designed in 1819 by his namesake, Augustin Fresnel. He was assigned by the French Commissioner of Lighthouses to develop a new improved lighthouse illumination system. At the time, most lighthouses contained parabolic reflectors. They weren't very efficient. The reflector was made of metallic material, copper usually, and it had a silvered surface to it. The lamp was mounted in the center of the reflector. So a lot of the light was able to escape out the front of the reflector. And the light that did get directed back into the reflector, a lot of the light got absorbed into the material. So overall, they weren't very efficient systems. Fresnel was a physicist, and he was trained in optics, so he started looking at using glass lenses. There were some lighthouses that experimented with glass lenses. They were plano convex lenses. They were flat on the back surface and had a spherical curvature to the front surface. One of the problems with that style lens is what's called spherical aberration. These type of lenses will focus the light very well in the very center of the lens, but as you get toward the outside perimeter of the lens, it diverges the light inward so that all the rays don't exit horizontally, so they're not focused properly. Mm-hmm. You can also imagine in the case of a first-order lens, a lens, a spherical lens of that size, a typical flash panel for a first-order lens is 1,000 millimeters high, so it's almost 40 inches tall. If that was a complete plano convex spherical lens, it would probably be about 12 inches in the center. So it would be extremely heavy, thick, absorb a lot of the light. So what Fresnel did is he used only the very center portion of that lens. For a first order lens, it was about 11 inches in diameter. And the thickness at that point was only about an inch thick. So it was very thin, lightweight, and it was the center of the lens that focused the light properly. Then he developed concentric rings that I like to call zones, but it's the typical rings that you see in a bullseye flash panel. And each one of those zones had a slightly different face angle. The first one might have been at 20 degrees, and it slowly increased to about 45 degrees, the very top ring. And what that did is it 
corrected spherical aberration. So the, the light that struck the back surface of the bullseye panel as it got further toward the top, because it was coming at a steeper angle, the exiting face was steeper to have all the rays come out horizontal. So that entire flash panel, all the rays came out horizontal and focused the light properly. And that center lens assembly was the critical component in his design. His first lens was built in 1822, and he died in 1827. So it was developed even further by other lighthouse engineers and manufacturers. And those are the lenses, the classic Fresnel lenses that you see today. They were all built from 1850 to the late 1800s. Thank you for that excellent explanation. I just want to mention for listeners who might not know, you you talked about first-order lenses for people who might not be familiar with them, they came in various sizes and strengths, uh, first order being the largest, although there are also some ones that are even larger than that, right? The hyperradial lenses down to, in this country, I believe sixth was the, the smallest uh, order that was used. But am I correct in saying that there were actually smaller ones like seventh and eighth order used in uh, Great Britain? Now, I've, I've heard of that, and I haven't seen them, but I did see a list um, I believe it was on the U.S. Lighthouse Society website. Tom Tag did a lot of research. Right. And they did list smaller lenses, and I haven't physically seen one. And, yeah, typically the ones we're most familiar with are from sixth order to first order. And then there were some larger lenses, the hyperradial. I think it was the mesoradio and then the hyperradial, mm, yep. with the hyperradial being the largest lens. Yeah, and I'll just mention also the there's there is the database of existing uh, Fresnel lenses in the United States on the U.S. Lighthouse Society website. You mentioned Tom Tag, who's done lots of research on that. Also, Chad Kaiser, uh, who's done a lot of work for the the Lighthouse Society as well, uh, has had a big hand in compiling that that list. So I wanted to give him a, a mention also. So let, let's talk a little bit about your uh, your personal background. I understand you've been a mechanical des- designer for Disney World for more than 30 years. I'm curious to know what, what sorts of things have you done and do you do for Disney World? I work in design and engineering at Disney doing mechanical design work. I've worked there for over 30 years now, so I've seen a lot of expansion. One of the first projects I worked on was the set pieces for Indiana Jones at MGM Studios, now called Disney Studios, and there's been a lot of expansion, including Animal Kingdom, new rides at Epcot, Magic Kingdom. So I work on anything that has to do with the mechanical equipment, and that could include anything from the ride systems, the ride vehicles, parade floats, uh, character costuming, uh, working on some of the character heads and animated character heads. And one of the things I like working on the most are the animatronic figures, Mm. uh, the ones everyone's familiar with in the ride systems. We work on the mechanical design for the figures, and that's improved a lot over the years. Uh, They used to be done with air cylinders, so you would hear a lot of the clicking and clacking in some of the rides, and the movement wasn't as smooth. Now they're all done electronically, so electric servo motors. So you get a much more lifelike, fluid movement to the figures, and then you can have them do a lot of things you wouldn't weren't able to do in the past. I also work on the modeling of the body shells, which is the shell that gives the the figures that their shape. And I've worked on the tooling to create the silicone heads, the skin for the heads, and the hands. And that's been the bulk of my work over the past several years. Uh, I have to say it's it's very enjoyable, as you can imagine. It's a lot of fun. So sometimes it doesn't feel like a job. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, that's that's fantastic. It does sound like very uh, painstaking, but but it's got to be fun and rewarding work as well. I think uh, you know some of yeah. our listeners might not be familiar with Fresnel lenses, but they're familiar with Indiana Jones, that's for sure. So moving on, how did you get involved with Fresnel lenses? I first became interested in lighthouses many years ago in the 1980s. I uh, was visiting the city of St. Augustine here in Florida, and I discovered the St. Augustine Lighthouse. At the time, it wasn't open to the public. The Lightkeeper's house was being restored. It was surrounded in chain-link fence. It was abandoned. But I did see a sign that it was being restored by the Junior Service League of St. Augustine. I eventually became friends with a few of the members of the Junior Service League, and I had the opportunity to climb the tower. It wasn't open to the public yet, but I did climb the tower, and I was able to see the first order from the lens. I had no idea what I was looking at. I just knew it looked amazing. It was six feet in diameter, 10 feet tall. I stood inside of it and was surrounded by all these prisms. It's a fixed flashing lens, so it had the belt-style lenses, the bullseye-style lenses. I was just intrigued by how this thing worked. Flash forward a few years later, and I received a newsletter saying that the, the lens was vandalized. There were two young boys in the nearby property that thought it would be fun to shoot at the lens with a rifle. Unfortunately, they were very good shots, and they were able to put a few holes in the belt lens and the flash panels. I think it was 13 prisons that were damaged. The Coast Guard wanted to remove the lens from the lighthouse. It was broken glass on the floor, and they just wanted to dismantle it and take it down. Of course, the Junior Service League and the city of St. Augustine, being rich in history, they wanted to keep their lens. So I volunteered to at least take dimensions and create some drawings. I had no idea optically how it worked. But uh, being familiar with mechanical design, I could at least create some drawings to see if the parts could be made. It took quite a while. It took about a year for the entire project. Numerous trips and taking dimensions. Uh, I did find some formulas, uh, historic formulas for no lens, and working with those all along, along with modern optical formulas. And I was able to create a cross-section of the lens and create the drawings. And it was eventually restored successfully uh, in 1992, and it's still in operation today. Yeah, I was there last year. And also, I should mention St. Augustine is the first lighthouse I ever saw in my life. I know it was because I have home movies of me in a baby carriage in front of the St. Augustine lighthouse. But yeah. Wow. Well, that, that, makes, that makes two of us then, because that was the first one I've seen. Oh, really? Okay. I'm sure a lot of our listeners know it's a great place to visit. I'd say it's one of the best lighthouses uh, really in the country to, to visit. Yes, it is. After you were involved in the restoration of that lens, you did some other restoration work before you got a little bit more into the, the actual creation of whole lenses, reproduction lenses. Uh, what, what are some of the other restoration projects you've been involved in? Some of the other restoration work I did started at the Ponson Lighthouse. They had a first-order lens that came from the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse, and it had two missing bullseye lenses. That one was restored in acrylic. It was the first cast acrylic lenses that were made. And those were put in place in 1999, and those are still in operation today, and they still look great. Then they had another first-order fixed lens, 
was the first lens that was in the uh, original tower. Uh, it was it's now in the museum, and that one was restored in glass, and also a third order lens that they had in the museum that was installed back up in the tower was also done in glass, and that's still in operation today. Uh, the glass prisms were made by Michael Shiner of Kier Glass. He's in Rhode Island, a glass artisan that does amazing work. The third order lens for Ponson it was the first one that he worked on, so he kind of learned how to do it on that project. And after that, he did the first order fixed lens. And he also helped out with the uh, Makapu lens in Hawaii, which was a, it's a hyper radial lens, which is even larger than the first order lens. It's eight feet in diameter. 12 feet high, and it had one of the belt lenses that was damaged. That was a very large piece of glass that he manufactured and did an amazing job. Uh, he also helped with the diamond head uh, lenses or prisms that were also done in glass. Now, after that, I worked on a number of lenses, uh, restoration in acrylic, uh, Point Arena Lighthouse, Ludington Maritime Museum, and the Pensacola Lighthouse were all done in acrylic. And I provide just the prisms and lenses that need to go, that, that are missing in these uh, historic lenses, but they're actually installed by Coast Guard approved lampists. And I work with a number of them around the country. Jim Woodward, a uh, lighthouse consultant, who I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. Mm-hmm. Kurt Fossberg, who helps with my reproduction lenses. And Jim Dunlap, who has done a lot of lighthouse restoration around the country. Sadly, uh, the job of lampist is kind of a disappearing uh, breed at this point. I, I, I'm always hoping that some younger people get involved in it. I hope some of some people might look at the work you do and maybe get inspired to get into that that kind of work because these lenses are, will always need care. Of course, yes, yes, they will. Yeah. So I was at Ponce Inlet last year too and saw those lenses you're talking about, and you would never know in a million years that there's anything, any part of those lenses that's not original. They're gorgeous lenses. Uh, so when did you start manufacturing uh, the entire lenses, reproduction lenses? Uh, I started the reproduction lenses in 2004. Let me give, make this a two-part question. About, about how many have you created at this point, and what are, what are some of the most, they're all notable, but what are some, what, what do you see as some of the most notable ones you've done? Uh, I've made 40 lenses to date, from 2004 till now, and I don't know if there's any of the lenses that I, that are my favorite, but I can tell you that probably the most favorite part of all the projects is actually finishing them, because they do take a lot of work, and there's a lot of labor that goes into them, but to, to finish the lens and, and you know seeing that beautiful lens and, and having it completed and then taking it to the lighthouse and installing it in the lighthouse and seeing the appreciation on the people's faces and going to beautiful coastal cities, that that's the, the favorite part of, of the projects is just getting that into the lighthouse and just, you know, seeing everyone just very happy with it. Of the uh, the lenses you've manufactured and that have actually been put into lighthouses, there's one I'm most familiar with here in the New England region. That's it. Rose Island in Newport, Rhode Island. It's a, a small, I believe, a sixth-order lens. Is that right? Yes, that's a sixth-order lens, a sixth-order fixed lens. And I really like that area, too. I love Newport, I love the city of Newport and all the old mansions. Uh, I love Martha's Vineyard. Uh, there's a lighthouse there, Gayhead Lighthouse, mm-hmm. and they've got a beautiful first-order lens. 
in the museum nearby the Gay Head, Light, Gay, uh, Gay Head Lighthouse, and I really love that area. Yeah, the Gay Head Lens is, is gorgeous. As a matter of fact, I just interviewed a woman who who's the daughter of a keeper at Gay Head, and her family, I uh, believe, were the last ones there while that lens was still in operation. And that museum where you saw that lens is a brand new museum. Uh, and I hear it's a wonderful setting. I haven't made it over there yet to see it in its new setting, but I hear it's hear it's great. So what's the largest lens that you've created? The largest lens to date is a third order. We've made both rotating and fixed third order lenses, but nothing larger. I would love to make a first order lens, but I haven't had the opportunity yet. Let's talk a little bit about the process of creating these lenses. I'm wondering if you had to kind of develop your own, maybe some tools and machines to do this? Uh, No, but I have a lot of people that help me manufacture them. One of the things that I keep running into, uh, I've heard it said, I'm not sure I've seen it in print, but I've certainly heard people say over the years that they can't make Fresnel lenses anymore because the formula was lost for making the, the glass prisms. Is that a total myth? The formulas that I use are from another lighthouse engineer named Alan Stevenson from the famous Lighthouse Stevensons. He wrote a book called Rudimentary Treatises of the History and Construction of Lighthouse Illumination in 1850. There are formulas in there. I don't know if those are Augustin Purnell's real formulas, actual formulas, or if he was documented, but those are the formulas that I've used. And his brother, Thomas Stevenson, also wrote a book around the same time called Lighthouse Illumination. And there was another book I found by the Chance Brothers written in 1910. Those books contain formulas that I was able to use, along with some modern optic formulas, uh, lens makers formula. Uh, There was another formula I found for modern Fresnel lenses that uh, calculated the the surface angles of uh, Fresnel lens. And I used all of those along with some typical refraction formulas. As the light goes into a denser medium, it bends at a certain angle. And as it exits going into the lighter medium, it bends at another angle. So I, I was able to use a combination of all those formulas to develop the, the profile of, of the lenses. Uh, I was looking at the, the videos on your YouTube channel, which are excellent. There's a, there's a bunch of them, and I, I recommend that people... Uh, look that up. If you go on YouTube and search for Artworks Florida, would that be the best way to find the, the YouTube channel? Yes, you just search for Artworks Florida, and I've got a number of videos on there, probably over 30 videos. And they some of them are the installations of the lenses I've done. Some of them are educational videos that show how the lenses work. Uh, so there's there's a number of videos out there, and anyone is welcome to use those videos in any way that they'd like. Okay. I'm wondering if you could uh, give maybe a brief explanation right now of the, the steps in the process. I know it's it's pretty complicated, and you could probably uh, talk at length about it, but if you could kind of condense that for us, us laymen, that would, be, that would be great. The manufacturing process is a little intense. There's a lot of steps that go into it. And if anyone's interested in watching a video of the manufacturing process, I've created uh, two or three videos, and they're on YouTube. One I would recommend is called Fresnel Lens Manufacturing 2018 Michigan Lighthouse Alliance Conference. That one has narration in it, and it has a little section in the beginning that goes into some of the early manufacturing process of the historic lenses. It's very brief, and then after that, it goes through the uh, my, my manufacturing process. First of all, let me say that there's a lot of 
talented people that help with the lenses. I have a metal fabrication shop, prism machining, uh, polisher, and uh, Kurt Fosberg, who I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, uh, Superior Lighthouse Restoration. He's a U.S. Coast Guard lampist, and he uh, is qualified to work on the historic Fresnel lenses. But he also helps me uh, manufacture the pedestals. Uh, he manufactures the reproduction lamps, uh, service wheels, reflectors, the ball bearing systems for the rotating lens, or any any anything intricate machining-wise, he'll be able to do that. Uh, the first step that I do to create the lenses is, is do a 3D computer model of each of the lenses. They're all a little bit different. Some customers actually send me photographs of the historic lens that used to be in their tower, and I try to reproduce that as accurately as possible. From the 3D model, I use that to create all the uh, individual machining steps. Uh, water jet cutting is the first thing that's done. I create a 2D profile from my model for the water jet cutter. And anyone that's not familiar with water jet cutting is a very high intensity water jet that has braces in it. And it's very powerful. It can cut through very thick sheets of, of steel or any type of metal or material. Uh, the brass that I use is much thinner. It's uh, eighth inch, quarter inch, and three eighths thick brass material. But they use the files and, and cut out all the profiles for all the frame members. Then it gets this, gets sent to a machinist who does some of the intricate machining. Then I get it back and I do some of the simpler machining, which is the countersinking, some uh, drilling and tapping, fit-ups for the, the hinges and latches to make the doors close properly. And once it's uh, fully assembled, I disassemble it, then I send it to a polisher. I used to polish the frames myself. Early on, there was quite a few lenses that I, I did myself. And let me tell you, it was quite a labor-intensive process. When the brass frame gets water jet cut, the edges are very rough. They're like sandblasted surface to them, so they're very, very rough. And you have to start off with a Dremel tool and trace the entire profile of the frame with a Dremel tool going with different grits of sandpaper from 60 grit to 120, 220, 400, and into polishing compounds. And you have to do that with the edges, and you have to do it with the surface of the, the, the brass itself. And it takes a long time. It's a lot of labor. Mm. Fortunately, I found a, a polisher that has professional equipment, and he does an amazing job. And they look like uh, polished gold when, when he's finished with them. Then I take the models of the prisms and send them to a, a machinist who does the prism machining and polishing and, and tinting of the prisms. They're tinted, the greenish hue that you're familiar with, with the historic lenses, and that makes them look uh, much more like the historic glass that was used yeah. in the 1800s. The time that I get the polished frames back, I get the prisms back, and I do all of the prism installation myself. That, that, that takes quite a bit of time. There's over 50 prisms, and even the smaller lenses, the fourth or sixth order lenses, so that takes quite a bit of time to put all the prisms in. It's probably about a month. And then once those prisms are all installed, that, that's pretty much the entire process. And the whole thing from start to finish takes three to four months to manufacture. 
it's a lot of work. There's a lot of labor that goes into it, but it's pretty rewarding feeling to get them done because they, they turn out beautiful at the end and it's, it's an amazing feeling and to get something like that finished. The finished product is absolutely amazing. I think anybody who's seen them would uh, testify to that. I was, as you were explaining that, I was imagining somebody from, uh, you know, one of the 19th century lens manufacturers and France or England. Of course, there was Chance Brothers in England. I was imagining somebody like that, you know, using a time machine and coming to see uh, the work that you do. And uh, they probably recognize some parts of it and be totally confused by some parts of it. They didn't have three D three D modeling in the eighteen hundreds. But yes, yes, exactly. And I find it hard to believe that they could manufacture these lenses back then because all the technology we have today. It's still difficult, so it's it's amazing what they did. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I always uh, tell people they're you know beautiful works of uh, functional art. Yes, they're you know even if they didn't serve a very important purpose, which is the reason they were created. Of course, they're just beautiful to look at, and as your yes. reproductions are too. I, I read somewhere that your uh, acrylic lenses are actually more efficient than the old uh, classical glass lenses. Is is that correct? I would say the overall lens assembly is equivalent to the historic lenses. What's different is the acrylic material. Acrylic uh, transmits 92% of light that passes through it, whereas glass will transmit anywhere from 80 to 90%, mm. depending on the type of glass that's used. So the glass material itself may not be as efficient what I have to say is the way that these prisms were machined in the 1800s is amazing. If you look at the bullseye assembly, that was done in individual pieces. You have the center lens, and then each one of those concentric rings was a separate piece. So the outside diameter of one ring has to fit inside the inside diameter of the next ring up. So they were machined within thousands of an inch to have a very tight tolerance and a slip fit between those. And, and there was an adhesive that was used to hold them together. But the, the precision of all of the lenses and prisms were, were amazing and the, and the fact that they could do that in the 1800s. You created a rotating third order Fresnel lens for the recent movie, The Lighthouse. By the way, I know it's a very controversial movie. People tend to either love it or hate it. Uh, I did a podcast episode that was uh, the entire episode was a discussion of the movie. And I'm in the camp of people who love it, although I can't say I understood totally what what it was all about. But uh, whether or not people loved or hated the movie, anybody who saw it had to be impressed by that lens, uh, which looked completely authentic and uh, looked just, I thought it looked beautiful in the, the black and white uh, way that movie was shot. I'm w- wondering, was that lens actually based on any particular historic lens? Uh, yes. Uh, I was contacted by the production designer, Craig Lathrop, and he did a lot of research on the type of lens that he wanted. And what's ironic is I was taking photographs. At the time he called me, the very first time he called me, I was taking photographs of the, um, I think it was called the Boulevard lens uh, from Texas, and it's in the um, National Archives in D.C. I was taking photographs of it, and that's the day he called me. And later on, he sent me photographs of the lens he wanted to reproduce, and it was that lens. So it's kind of ironic. Uh, so he used that lens, but we did change the design a little bit. He wanted it to look more like a monster, more like an octopus, mm. uh, because some of the um, 
references to the movie. So we um, kind of splayed the legs out a little bit on the bottom to give it more of that look. So when you look at it at one angle and you see the two bullseyes with those legs, it, it kind of looks like an octopus. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, the whole movie has kind of a foreboding feel to it. And the the way they uh, they show the lens kind of fits into that. It's not your typical lighthouse movie. It's, <laughs> it's not a feel good Hallmark movie for sure, but... <laughs> It is interesting. It follows a lot of Greek mythology. Like you said, it's kind of hard to understand, but uh, he, they were very authentic to the history, though. They did a good job, and, yes. and Craig, the production designer, was was amazing. He's actually a member of the U.S. Lighthouse Society now, uh, doing some of his research, and he sent me drawings from the National Archives, and he actually did a 3D model, so he's very particular and detailed in his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything in that movie, it was just tremendously detailed. So much work went into it. And I hope that the people who hated it plot-wise at least uh, recognize that. <laughs> Moving on a little bit more to your production, uh, the you know the way you uh, produce these lenses, how, how many employees do you have? Uh, that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I have a lot of people that help me, though. I have a, there's a water jet company that's local that does the water jet, com- water jet uh, cutting, and they do some of the machining. And I do some of the intricate machining. And then I have the polisher that I found. And Kurt Fosberg, who is a uh, big contributor to these lenses, he basically builds everything from the lens down, all the pedestals, service wheels, reflectors, lamps. So I have a lot of people that help me, but my company is just its just me. That's amazing. I, I didn't realize that Kurt Fosberg was, was so involved. Yes, yes, he is. It's beautiful work. I've just got a couple more questions for you for bonus points. First of all, uh, what have been some of the favorite projects you've been involved in? Well, I actually thought about this a lot, and I don't think I have a specific project or reproduction lens that is one of my favorites, but I can tell you that probably the most rewarding part is getting them finished and seeing the final product and then delivering that lens to some of our beautiful coastal cities around the country and installing that uh, in the tower, in the museum, and then uh, witnessing the appreciation of the people that are receiving it. And that's definitely the most rewarding part. Well, maybe you've already answered my the, the last question I was going to ask you, but maybe there's, I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add about what you enjoy most about your work with Artworks Florida. Anything you'd like to add? It's really creating the lenses. Being able to do something that was a part of history also. Sometimes I think back if this was done over 100 years ago, and it's pretty rewarding to be able to recreate something that was done that long ago, to recreate that art. That's something I really love about it. And even when I started designing the lenses, when I first found the formulas and I started going through a lot of the engineering work, it was... It was spectacular to actually see the the rays of light that I put on my computer and I had it actually bend through the prisms and have it reflect and refract and have those all come out horizontal according to the formulas. That was pretty neat feeling. You just used the word spectacular a moment ago, and that's certainly a perfect word to describe uh, the the work that you do. It's just, you know, there's all kinds of uh, superlatives that can be applied to it. Amazing, uh, spectacular, just absolutely breathtaking to see in person. And I hope... uh, Everybody listening gets a chance to see some of your reproduction lenses around the country. So it's a a real pleasure talking to you today. I hope we can talk again sometime. I look forward to seeing more of your work uh, as the years go on. And uh, Dan, thanks so much for spending time with me today. You're welcome. And thank you, Jeremy. 
I want to mention again, you can learn more about Artworks Florida online at artworks-florida.com. So Jeff, I understand there's some kind of a a project with Dan Spinella and the U.S. Lighthouse Society? Yeah, sure. Uh, We were trying to figure out a way to work together more, and uh, Dan came up with this idea to use his creativity and his love of Fresnel lenses to create uh, Fresnel lens-inspired jewelry. And so for 2020, over the holidays, we he designed a uh, lapel pin based on a segment of a Fresnel lens. And we're planning to actually, we're planning to actually do this each year uh, with version two uh, being launched in 2021. As a matter of fact, we sold out of the first version uh, and we're ordering more. So hopefully those will be available for sale in the near future. Very cool. And that was a really good idea to do that uh, jewelry with him. And uh, I'll just mention before we move on here, I know you've, uh, like me, seen the movie The Lighthouse. In fact, we did a special podcast episode about that movie. And of course, as I spoke about with Dan in the interview, he created that beautiful lens that was used in that movie. Uh, about a, I guess a thir- it was a third order in, in size. And uh, aside from what people might think about the movie in general, I know there's there's uh, people tend to love it or hate it, but everybody's got to admit the detail was incredible. And that lens was yeah, incredible. Yeah, Dan, Dan talked to me a little bit about his work uh, on that lens and his dealings with the producers. And he uh, said that the production wanted uh, as uh, detailed a replica as possible. You know, uh, for him to... Uh, create a lens it's not inexpensive and uh they said spare no expense and so he not only made a completely authentic replica of historical fresnel lens it tied in really well with the film and their desire to create you know a uh really a a detailed historic representation of what it was like to be on a, a remote island as a lighthouse keeper i think they did a great job with that I completely agree. We have one more guest on today's episode of Lighthearted. Some of our listeners might have seen a recent article that appeared on the BBC website and also in some other places about Alan Dunlop and his drawings. Jeff, please help me tell everyone about Alan Dunlop. Sure, Jeremy. Alan is one of the UK's leading architects and a respected educator. He's taught at a number of schools of architecture in the UK and the US and Germany and was educated in London at the Macintosh School of Architecture in Glasgow. And he's a fellow of the Royal Incorporation of Architects in Scotland and the Royal Society of Arts. Alan has won more than 50 national and international awards, including Royal Institute of British Architects Awards, Scottish Design Awards, the Grand Prix for Architecture, and a special award from the Royal Institute of the Architects of Ireland. In 2008, he was awarded the Royal Gold Medal in Architecture from the Royal Scottish Academy. Alan is also a gifted artist, and his drawings have been exhibited at the Royal Academy in London and at the Royal Scottish Academy, among other venues. Last year, when COVID-19 disrupted his work, he created a visual diary of his family's life during lockdown. After filling four large sketchbooks, he turned his attention to lighthouses. Alan has been visiting and photographing lighthouses for about 30 years. For these latest sketches, he's focused on the Scottish lighthouses designed by the famous Stevenson family of engineers. His sketches depict not only the lighthouses themselves, but also the surrounding landscape and often wildlife. I recently had a chat with Alan Dunlop, and let's listen to that now. 
I'm speaking today with Alan Dunlop, who is an architect in Glasgow, Scotland, and we're speaking through the magic of Zoom. Thank you so much for being with me today, Alan. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to it. So I saw uh, just the other day an article on the BBC website about your beautiful lighthouse sketches, sketches of lighthouses in Scotland. That's what I'd like to speak about today. First of all, let me ask you, according to what I read in that article, your love affair with lighthouses goes back around 30 years. What do you think drew you to lighthouses in the first place? A combination of two things. First of all, they're incredible structures, usually built by five generations of one single family over 160 years of work. But also they're very often set within pretty wild and quite dangerous settings. So a combination of the structures themselves, how innovative they were at the time of construction, but also their setting. Drawing, hand drawing is an important part of how I practice as an architect. And I've always kept sketchbooks and uh, I've always drawn lighthouses in their setting. So that's, and that stretches back to the time when I was, when I was a student of architecture. So that, that's it's the interest in them as structures themselves. I mean, they're civil engineering projects. They're not necessarily architectural projects, but they follow the uh, Louis Sullivan mantra of form never follows function. So they're interesting architecturally too, but uh, they're setting. Mm-hmm. And the surroundings make them extraordinary things for you to draw and to try and capture in a sketchbook. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And having visited Scotland, as we were just chatting about a few minutes ago, I was there in 2017 and saw a couple of the lighthouses you sketched. I saw some incredible lighthouses on the southeast coast. So you have some great subjects. The Stevenson family, they, they built, uh, as I say, over a period of 160 odd years, something like 85 lighthouses for the Northern Lighthouse Port. I'm not going to tackle all 85, <laughs> but I've chosen to tackle maybe 30 of the most interesting. So mm-hmm. far, I've drawn 22 of them. So uh, I've got another eight or so to sketch. So I'm putting together kind of last eight to finish off the, you know, the 30 that I've set out to do. Uh, as far as I know, it's really pretty unique in the, the world, the Stevenson family of engineers. It's absolutely incredible. There's nothing really like the Stevenson family anywhere. And, and not only that, I mean, the, the father of everything, Robert uh, Stevenson, had three sons, uh, one of which is Thomas Stevenson, whose son was Robert Louis Stevenson. So all in all, it's incredible family history. I saw a couple of the, the lighthouses that you've sketched, including Isle of May, which uh, struck me as just being an incredible lighthouse, for, especially for being built in 1816. One of Robert Stevenson's very first lighthouses, yes. Bell Rock, which is a truly incredible piece of civil engineering, was his first. But uh, uh, the Isle of May is another very early lighthouse. The great thing about Isle of May is that you can get a boat tour out to it and you can actually go onto the island, which is now a nature reserve. And you can spend a whole day there just kind of wandering around and appreciating the environment and the setting. And also the lighthouses. There are two lighthouses you probably know on the Isle of May. Uh, and just, uh, you know, sink, taking it all in. The east coast of Scotland in Fife is a particularly beautiful part of the country. Uh, and it's, it's a very pleasant day out if you get a boat and, and take a trip out there. Yeah, oh, I agree completely. We got to spend a few hours out there when I was there with a uh, U.S. Lighthouse Society tour. 
And uh, there's something like approximately 100,000 nesting puffins on Isle of May. So. Yes, there is. Yes, yes. Yeah. And there are terns and all kinds of other uh, sea life and marine life and everything that's around there too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an incredible place to explore. I was reading in that article uh, that early in the lockdown over there, you filled a few sketch pads with uh, drawings of your family. So why did you decide to switch to sketching lighthouses? Well, at the start of lockdown, and it was quite, it was a very, we're in a serious lockdown at the moment, but at the start, at the end of March, beginning of April 2020, we were all really ordered to stay at home. Now, work slowed to, and teaching, I teach at Liverpool, but also I've been teaching in China. That almost completely dropped off. So to keep myself busy and to keep myself sane, I started a sketchbook and I thought it would be interesting to record the experiences of my family as they went through lockdown. I didn't think it would last as long as it did, but it gave me the opportunity to record our experiences from from, uh, um, from what was kind of early spring through to ed, uh, early summer. The lockdown finished at the end of May and I thought, well, really, there's no point in continuing that element of it, those sketchbooks any further. But then it started up again. So I had to think, well, I don't want to do a new series of sketchbooks recording the experiences of my family. I want to try and do something else. So I did other sketchbooks about important pieces of architecture in Scotland. And then my wife came up with the idea. She said, look, you've been interested in lighthouses for a long time. You've got some really nice sketches. Why don't you do a sketchbook called Stevenson Lighthouses? You've always talked about how remarkable the Stevensons are. Why don't you do a sketchbook on the lighthouses? And I thought, well, that's a good idea. It'll give me a chance to do that and also to explore the environment that they're situated in that I was so interested in. I had frankly no idea at all how popular they would be. They were done really for my own pleasure. And as I say, to keep myself busy and to keep myself frankly sane during Hmm. this whole pandemic thing. But they have really took off. And, And since I started doing them, Uh, The Northern Lighthouse Board contacted me. They want to feature them. The National Library of Scotland now wants them as a collection once, uh, you know, the 30 are finished and and the COVID thing is put behind us. And also the Mitchell Library, which is the main reference uh, library in Glasgow, want them to keep them as a digital archive. So I, I started them because I was interested in lighthouses. I had a lot of sketches that I'd done previously that I could incorporate, but I've been overwhelmed and delighted, really, by the interest that people have shown in them. It's not just me. I thought it was only me that found lighthouses <laughs> quite astonishing things, but, you know, they're all over the world. And now that you're contacting me from the United States, obviously you have your colleagues and your friends and your various other members of your Lighthouse Society also interested. So yeah. so I'm both astonished and I'm absolutely delighted in the level of interest that the sketches have, have shown, have indicated. About uh, two days ago, I think it was, I posted uh, the BBC article on the U.S. Lighthouse Society Facebook page. Yeah. I've already had a bunch of inquiries. How can I get prints of those? All right, uh, okay. <laughs> And uh, I'm not surprised at all. So actually, let me let me ask you, well, really two questions related to that. What's the best way for people to see your sketches? A few of them appeared on that BBC article, but is there another way people can see your Lighthouse sketches? Well, I, I have an Instagram page that I put them on there. I mean, I have to tell you, I'm a bit of an old codger myself. 
And my daughter said to me, why don't you put them on Instagram and I'll set it up for you. So so I, I put it on Instagram and, and, and people can see all the lighthouse uh, sketches, but also the earlier sketches of, of the lockdown with my family and other work I've done during this whole period of the pandemic. So they're on there. Yeah. Um, there has also been interest in people uh, wanting to purchase prints. I'm a working architect. I don't sell. I'm more likely to give away drawings than I am to sell them. But I'm trying to set up a website where I can, if people want to purchase a, a limited edition signed print, they can do. But that's in an early stage of, of kind of process. I haven't got quite got that finalized at the moment. But sure. if you want to see them, uh, the Instagram page is is the best place to actually view them. People can search for your name, I believe, to search for Alan yeah, Dunlop. Yeah, it's, it's one word, Alan Dunlop Architect mm-hmm. on Instagram. Yeah, um, and you, it's A-L-A-N. Yeah. yeah, and if you if they search for it and they like it, that'll be <laughs> that'll be good. Right. I, it makes me laugh really when I when I view Instagram. If you post a cat with a Hitler moustache. You're likely to get ten thousand likes. Yes, but uh, but you know a lighthouse drawing or anything at all like that. I mean, get I get a number of likes, maybe twenty or thirty at a time. Yes, oh, I have the same uh, issue. I post pictures of lighthouses on my personal Instagram. It's like you know some of the the most popular ones maybe have gotten around a hundred. I think my my top like is I think about sixty five. Like you, it took me a while to buy in, into Instagram. I think I understood Facebook better, but Instagram is more popular with younger people from what I hear. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. yeah. So let me ask you, in the course of your work and the course of your teaching, you've traveled extensively. Uh, I'm wondering, have you actively visited lighthouses? And were you sketching lighthouses before this project? Um, I was a frequent visitor to the United States, and I taught at uh, the University of Washington and also at Kansas State University. One of the most utterly depressing things about this whole COVID situation and the pandemic is, I don't know whether I'll ever be able to visit the United States again. I mean, that really is incredibly depressing because it's a country that I love very much. Um, I haven't drawn any lighthouses. I'm usually, when I'm over there, I'm working and I'm teaching, um, and I've got very little kind of free time. And I've been teaching in, in Kansas, which is probably the furthest away from a lighthouse you could probably get. So I haven't drawn any lighthouses in the United States. The lighthouses that I've drawn are all based around the west and the north and the east coast of Scotland. Yeah. Um, and they're all they're all like uh, Stevenson lighthouses. So, no, I would love to. I mean, some of the lighthouses that you've shown on your own Instagram pages and their setting look really very beautiful indeed. So uh, I would love the opportunity to come back to the United States and to draw some lighthouses. I'd really enjoy that. Alan Dunlop, thank you. Congratulations on this this project. Thank you for doing it. Great talking to you today. Thanks so much, Alan. It was very good talking to you too, Jeremy. And thank you for getting in touch. I appreciate it. It was mentioned in the interview that prints of Alan Dunlop's Lighthouse sketches will be made available at some point through some kind of online store. For right now, though, there's a way you can get one of his sketches for your very own. The first person who answers the following trivia question in an email to me at jeremy at uslhs.org will get a print of Alan's sketch of Rattray Head Lighthouse. I think it's one of the best of the series he's done. Jeff, please read the question. 
I get the honor of asking the the uh, trivia question. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Okay, here it is. What famous author wrote the following in 1880? Quote, whenever I smell salt water, I know that I am not far from one of the works of my ancestors. When the lights come out at sundown along the shores of Scotland, I am proud to think they burn more brightly for the genius of my father. The first person to email Jeremy at jeremy at uslhs.org, that's jeremy at uslhs.org, and tells us who the person was who wrote that quote, will receive the print that Jeremy just mentioned of Alan Dunlop's Lighthouse Sketch. And people should be sure to include their mailing address in the email, so if you, if you actually win, we can send it to you. So, Jeff, this is the part of the podcast episode where I usually thank you. Usually I'm recording with one of my other co-hosts, usually Cindy or Michelle. And I, uh, near the end, we thank you and all the other staff and volunteers and members and the board of directors of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. But since uh, you're with me today and you're co-hosting, would you like to say anything else about the society? Well, why don't we take this opportunity to thank you, Cindy and Michelle. You know, these podcasts are uh, an accomplishment, over a hundred of them to date. And I think they have become something that are part of the U.S. Lighthouse Society and something that people really enjoy. So thank you, Jeremy, and everybody who's part of putting these together. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And thank you for supporting it from the start. Uh, You've been a big part of that uh, whole scene, and I do appreciate that. And it's just been a lot of fun. Next week's episode of Lighthearted will feature an interview with Sarah Jones, executive director of the Tybee Island Historical Society in Georgia. The Historical Society is the steward of Tybee Island Lighthouse. Thank you so much for co-hosting today, Jeff. We'll have to do it again sometime. Definitely. Thanks also to our guests in this episode, Dan Spinella and Alan Dunlop. If you listen to this podcast using Apple Podcasts, we'd be very grateful if you could rate and review us. And if you can spread the word in any way, we really appreciate it. Tell your friends, share a link on social media, yell out your window, whatever, whatever, it all helps. We often include some kind of quote near the end of the podcast, Jeff. Do you have something? Sure I do. Here it goes. The American economist and journalist Henry George once wrote, Let no man imagine that he has no influence, whoever he may be and wherever he may be placed. The man who thinks becomes a light and a power. Nice quote. Thank you, Jeff. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Shine, let it shine, let it shine